hello everybody good afternoon thank you all very much for showing up uh, so in today's episode we are going to do something slightly different we are going to talk about how to avoid common investing mistakes and these are investing mistakes i see a, a lot of people around me do and i have done some of them myself uh, when i first started out investing and so uh, in this episode we we are going to follow charlie munger's uh, philosophy uh, of invert always invert uh, so charlie munger likes to say that uh, he he first likes to think about what can go wrong with something and then try not to do those things and uh, w- one of the things that that can go wrong with investing is uh, volatility so volatility has been a feature of stock markets uh, throughout history so in every major stock market in every part of the world uh, there has always been volatility and uh, people who uh, have been able to withstand volatility only those who survive in the short run those who can survive this volatility only they have the chance to build wealth over the long term so if you do something if you take some actions if you commit some mistakes and as a result of those mistakes uh, you allow sh- short term volatility to sort of crush you then it's very very difficult to get back from that so it's it's a good idea to avoid these mistakes as charlie munger likes to say i i only want to know where i'm going to die so that i never go there so um turning short term volatility into long term risk is one of the ways investors die and so we never want to go there and so that is the purpose of this episode uh so the stock market is a is a wonderful machine for wealth creation so if you, if you read brian feroldi's uh, latest book why does the stock market go up well it, it doesn't seem like a very very good title in today's markets <laughs> but but over the long over a long period of time uh, at least the us stock market over over decades has returned something in the range of uh, 9 9 to 10% per year for for investors and so over over a long period of time stocks tend to go up uh, simply because businesses are productive they reinvest earnings they compound capital and all all those good things so as investors we want to benefit from these things and in that book brian feroldi uh, calls the stock market the the single greatest wealth creation machine or something like that and i tend to agree with him uh, simply because the stock market is is one way that perfectly ordinary people uh, just through diligent saving and investing can over a period of time amass extraordinary fortunes and it's it's very very difficult for ordinary people uh, to uh, gain very large amounts of wealth in in pretty much any any other field you you have to either be extraordinarily talented or some something like that uh, if if you want to make it uh, in so, some other field but in 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 the stock market if you are just uh, patient and diligent about saving and investing and disciplined and all that uh, if you can just learn to master your own psychology uh, there is a very good chance that uh, we'll be able to amass life changing amounts of wealth Uh, but that is only if we survive these kinds of volatile periods that happen all the time in the in the stock market so that's why it is important uh, to learn 
what are some common mistakes and how to avoid them uh so so the first thing i mean this this might be perfectly obvious uh, but i'll say it anyway uh, because i see so many people fall prey to this the the first important thing is we should decide the timing of when we sell stocks so we should not be forced to sell a stock just to meet a daily expense or something like that uh, this is super important so if we've been saving money for to buy a house or something like that um say uh, we we are going to buy a house that costs uh, say 500k and uh, we have 100k saved up for a down payment now if we are planning to buy this house in the near future uh, it's generally not a good idea to go and put that 100k into stocks because in the short run anything can happen in the stock market and then um, the stocks can drop 20% in one month so what happens if that 100k that we put into the stock market becomes 80k because stocks drop 20% and now um, we don't have enough for our down payment we needed that money but we put it into stocks so that is usually not a good idea either we have to now uh, find some other way to uh, get that 20k for the down payment or we have to settle for a cheaper house or something like that so if we need some money immediately uh it's generally not a good idea to put it into the stock market but that is one common way that uh people let volatility they turn short term volatility into long term risk so if if you buy a stock and you know if if we think that the stock that we buy uh, has very good long term economic prospects and it's going to compound capital at 10% or something like that over a long period of time let's say we we think earnings of the company are going to grow 10% earnings revenues cash flows all all those things it's a great company and earns good returns on capital and all that now o- over a long period of time that holds true generally uh, over long periods of time when uh, uh, earnings grow 10% per year uh, the the stock also does 10% per year so we we can expect uh, 10% per year from from that stock but in the short period of time in anything can happen and uh if the stock goes low um if the stock drops 20% or something like that uh we don't want to be forced to sell this company when it is down uh, so we should determine as far as possible the time of our sale of stocks this is a basic principle if if we don't determine the time if something else some other expense like paying for a house or paying for a medical treatment or whatever if some some other expense decides when we have to sell stocks uh, then usually we may be forced to sell stocks at highly inconvenient times and that will turn even even if the volatility is short term it's now a long term risk because we are forced to sell at that price and so lose our money permanently um so warren buffett uh, likes to say that beta is not risk uh, short term volatility uh, and correlation with the market th- these are not measures of risk risk is permanent loss of capital the probability of permanent loss of capital that is what risk is this is what buffett likes to say but if we are forced to sell stocks uh, when they are down then what we have done is we have just turned uh what may be a temporary notional loss uh due to volatility into a permanent loss of capital and so we have turned short term volatility into long term risk and we we don't want to do that 
So one one important principle is never be uh, as far as possible never be forced to sell at low prices. And this this happens in all kinds of surprising ways. So for example, uh, th- there was a bunch of tweets and uh, um, people on Reddit uh, t- talking about how how they are going to pay taxes. So what what happened was um, people they in in 2021 which was a good year uh, for stocks uh, there were a lot of people who made uh, short term capital gains and then at the end of that uh, uh, 2021 they owed taxes on those short term capital gains and they are supposed to pay taxes to the irs um, by uh, april 15th of 2022 or or whatever so let, let's say someone had 100k in uh, in stocks and they made a 50% return which is a great kind of return to make in one year so that 100k became 150k but now they owe taxes on it so if if they owed a 25% tax say uh, if the tax rate was 25% then uh, they have 50k of profits so 150k minus 100k that's 50k of profits and 25% tax on 50k of profits that's about 12.5k so they owe 12.5k to the government they will need this 12.5k to pay the government in 4 months time or something like that so when they needed an expense like this they know that this expense is around the corner and they need this money uh they should not have left that money in stocks but that's what they did so a lot of people they left the money in stocks and so uh now let's say that 150k drops 33% one third and so that that 150k is now back to 100k say exactly they now have to take out 12.5k out of this 100k to pay the tax uh, because the tax is for the 2021 calendar year so now they are left with only 87.5k uh, after uh, taking out this money to pay taxes so normally uh when when a stock goes up 50% and then falls down 33% uh, it's back to where it started so 100 becomes 150 150 becomes uh goes back to 100 so but in this particular case even though uh the dynamics are the same the the stocks they held went up 50% and then went down 33% uh the problem is that because of the taxes uh their 100k has actually become 87.5k so they have actually lost money and th- this is a simple example but uh, uh, to a lot of people it's a lot more serious than that because they lost more than 33% there are some stocks uh, that that have lost 80% of their value and things like that speculative bets and so on um and so there were people whose entire net worth was wiped out just to pay taxes for the previous year on profits that they don't even have anymore Uh, so this this is a very sad situation and it is another example of short term volatility being converted into long term risk um, the other important thing to avoid this kind of thing is if if you want to not have to sell stocks to meet expenses we are always going to have some expense or other so the cash for these expenses has to come from some other source so what other source is this cash going to come from well there are two sources that i can think of one is a cash cushion so most financial experts they like to say that you know have have six months of expenses or one year worth of your expenses uh, as cash in your bank account in your checking account and i like this advice a lot so it's true that that 
uh, one year worth of expenses or six months worth of expenses that's not really earning a return in the checking account. And in fact, it's losing purchasing power as a result of inflation and all that. But still, it is something that prevents uh, you from having to sell stocks when they are uh, at lows uh, and so on. So uh, it, it helps protect um, us from turning short-term volatility into long-term risk. So I, I like this idea of a cash cushion. Uh, then the other thing I really like is to have multiple uncorrelated sources of income. So if our if all our income comes from our investments or something like that, um, and uh, if, if, we, if we sell, say, 1% of our portfolio or 2% of our portfolio every year to meet our expenses, uh, then the problem is when, when stocks are down 20%, we, we still have to sell uh, to meet our expenses. And that is, uh, uh, that, that is again, an example of where we are forced to sell uh, uh, stocks when, when at unfavorable times to meet expenses. And since we don't want to do that, we have to make sure that we have income from some other source. So preferably a source that is uncorrelated to the stock market. So something like a rental property or a business that we run on the side or uh, even, even a job that uh, pays us a regular income that is not uh, totally, that, that's not correlated to what's going on in the stock market. Um, generally, it's a good idea to cultivate multiple uncorrelated sources of income so that in case our stocks are low, we don't have to sell the stocks uh, to pay for expenses, we have income coming from other sources. So that, that is one, one key uh, uh, concept here. Uh, the, the second big way that a lot of people turn volatility into risk is through uh, their own psychology. So psychologically, a lot of our portfolios are down this year. My, my portfolio is down as well. Uh, uh, and uh, so psychologically, it's, it's, it's difficult to hold on to stocks uh, as they are going. I mean, we see all kinds of uh, crazy headlines and in inflation is up and uh, uh, all kinds of crazy political things are happening, geopolitical events and wars and whatnot. Uh, so th there's always some fear. And psychologically, uh, if, if our stocks have already fallen, say, uh, 10% or something like that, uh, it, or, or more than that in, in many cases. Um, so if our stocks have already fallen, um, we are afraid that they may fall more. And so uh, psychologically, our tendency is to try and make for the exits. And usually, uh, that, that uh, in the past at least, that has turned out to be a, a very bad strategy. Because usually, it's only when stocks are at multi-year lows that you have buying opportunities and so on. And so uh, we have to sort of fight against our own psychology. So some, some of us, uh, we sort of have this mindset that we get excited when stock prices go low because that gives us bargains. And we know that if we are going to be invested into stocks for the long haul, uh, then it's a good idea to buy them for as cheap as possible. So Warren Buffett has this uh, thing. He says... Um, you know, if, if you if you rejoice when stock prices go high, uh, it's like you're cheering when when gas prices go high just because you filled up your tank yesterday. It's some something like that. So if if you rejoice when stock prices are high, it's it's like that. Uh, so so uh, 
if you're going to be a buyer of stocks over the long haul, uh, either because uh, uh, you are going to make direct investments in the stock market or you own shares of companies and those companies are buying back and retiring shares. So, for example, I, I have a big big part of our portfolio, my, my family's portfolio in, in Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, Berkshire Hathaway was, was uh, the, the B shares were some, something of the order of uh, $350 or something like that. And at the time when they were $350, uh, Buffett stopped doing buybacks um, or uh, Buffett uh, greatly reduced the size of the buybacks that he was doing. Um, but now uh, the, the stock is back to uh, $300 level. So it's, it's down uh, quite a bit since, uh, since the 350 level. Uh, but I'm now reasonably confident that Buffett may have started doing uh, buybacks. And Buffett is a very disciplined uh, capital allocator. And when, when he buys back shares, uh, I, I have a good degree of confidence that he's buying back shares at below intrinsic value. So if I am a long-term holder of Berkshire Hathaway, I actually benefit when the price stays low for a long time. So ultimately what Buffett says is there's only one day on which you need the price of the stock to be high. And that is on the day you sell the stock. The rest of the time, you don't really care where the stock is. And if it is low and the company is buying back shares, that is great because that increases. So what what, what is a share buyback? A share buyback is continuing owners of a company buying back the stake from selling owners of the company. So the the lower the price we can pay to buy out fellow shareholders, the better it is for us over a long period of time. And so Buffett has this point that psychologically, uh, we may all feel happy when stocks go up and sad when stocks go down. But if we own shares in companies that are buying back stock and being disciplined about buybacks, we should actually be happy when stock prices go down temporarily because then the company will be able to buy back and retire more shares. And as a result of that, our stake in the company, our stake in the future profits and future revenues and cash flows of the company is going to be much higher uh, because they are able to do these buybacks at low prices. Uh, of course, uh, some, some people are able to get excited uh, when stock prices go low. Um, different people have different levels of tolerance uh, to, to this sort of thing. Uh, so to some people, it's just numbers on a screen. So they are not too too much affected when stock prices go low. Whereas others among us, uh, we, we are a lot more worried when, when, when stocks go down. Uh, we, we, we tend to let that affect our behavior and our judgment in a bad way. And that, that is really the worst thing um, that, that can happen. So uh, for investors, it is particularly important for us to know ourselves very well. So Charlie Munger uh, has this piece of advice. He he likes to say that if you're the type of person who can't tolerate a 50% drop in the value of your stocks, say uh, two or three times during your life, uh, if, you're, if you're the kind of person who can't tolerate that, uh, then you are going to get mediocre returns in the stock market. And there's nothing much you can do about it because you, you will tend to make all the wrong decisions. Um, now, uh, Munger likes to say, say, say it in a very, uh, uh, he, he doesn't mince words. He, he says it, he says what he thinks. But I, I, I think there is uh, some things that 
people like us uh, we we can do uh, so those among us who cannot stand volatility it's it's generally a good idea to know ourselves and there's nothing wrong in taking the help of a financial advisor or uh, going to an investing club or bu- buying a book uh, a bunch of books that uh, that, that inspire us so I, i like to read buffett letters i like to uh, so i have already read buffett's letters and so on but during periods of volatility i just like to read them again classics like peter lynch's books on investing and things like that i just like to read them um just as a way to reinforce the fundamental principles and i i think that really helps me stay calm even during uh, the, these kinds of turbulent times uh, because i can uh, i can read what happened in the past and what people like buffett were going through um, there, there were years when berkshire stock dropped 50% in a in a single year and um, buffett and munger just soldiered on and that gives me a certain amount of uh, inspiration so if if you go back and read buffett's 2008 2009 letters th- that was the time of the great uh, financial crisis and um, buffett lays out very beautifully you know, wh- why uh, america is such a great country and why there are such wonderful businesses and if you're happy with the stocks that you own if you're happy with the business performance um short term volatility is not something you have to worry about and things like that so um i think for those of us who don't get excited when stocks go low uh, for those of us who are worried when we see our uh, brokerage balance or or whatever uh, re- going back and reading some of these pieces rereading uh, pieces that inspire us to invest um th- that can really help uh the the other uh, strategy that really helps is to develop conviction uh, so no usually uh, when when we have conviction in our strategy and conviction in the stocks that we own we are less likely to sell them when when uh, they they go through a periodic uh, uh, when when they go through a period of uh, bad performance or or something like that um now uh, that there is a famous saying in investing that uh, we we can't really borrow conviction we have to choose strategies that we can stick to over the long run and those are the strategies that we develop conviction in and we can't borrow that conviction if if i read um what someone else wrote and then uh, buy a stock based on that then if the stock falls next week i may be inclined to sell it very quickly whereas if i do my own research if i go read 10k's and 10q's if i try and really understand the economics of the company and uh, listen to the conference calls and listen to the ceo when he's making presentations and go go uh, read about the industry read about the sector read about competitors try to analyze what this company's future economic potential is things like that build financial models for it whatever helps me develop conviction if i go through all those steps prior to actually investing in the stock then i find that i'm much less likely to sell stocks so for, for example during uh, march 2020 when uh, st- stocks were uh, at, at uh, multi year uh, at, at i think one, one year or two year lows uh, st- stocks had dropped uh, like 35% in a few weeks or something like that during march 2020 uh, i 
sold only one or two holdings in in our portfolio and i i kept all my high conviction holdings exactly uh, uh, as they were and i in fact used uh, some of our savings to go and buy uh, some some more stocks during that uh, period because i had high conviction in in these companies so that that is very important do whatever it takes to develop conviction before going and uh, buying uh, the stock uh so so that that is ab- absolutely important for for investors um in fact uh, warren buffett uh, has this uh, famous saying so if you go and read uh, buffett's partnership letters so w- one buffett before he became the ceo of berkshire he was running this uh, buffett partnership and he used to write these letters to his partners and in one of the letters he has this wonderful quote let me let me just read this quote he says you will not be right simply because a large number of people momentarily agree with you you will not be right simply because important people agree with you you will be right over the course of many transactions only if your hypotheses are correct your facts are correct and your reasoning is correct so in in other words you have to be convinced uh you have to have the conviction that you're making a particular investment because uh your hypothesis is correct your facts are correct and your reasoning is correct uh, not not because someone says it's a good investment or not because the market is very enthusiastic about the stock or anything like that so it's important to focus on on the fundamentals uh and not just market prices and buffet has this other saying that you know that there is mr market and the the market is there to serve you and not to guide you i i love this saying uh, from from one of his letters and um, that that is exactly what uh, buffett uh, that that's exactly how buffett thinks he has his own estimate of the intrinsic value of stocks um, he he doesn't really uh, his estimate of intrinsic value is completely independent of what the market thinks of the stock uh, so so just because Uh, a stock goes up 20% uh, it does not mean that buffett will change his opinion about a company or or anything like that he's got his own uh, fundamentals driven way of valuing companies and so the market is there just to serve buffett so if the market presents bargains to him he will buy it um, because he he knows what the in his own mind he knows what the intrinsic value of the stock is or an estimate of it and if the market doesn't give him bargains he's not going to do anything whereas um what what we tend to do we, we are not buffet and so uh, what at least i i have done in in the past is uh, i've let the market's narrative uh, in influence what i think of a particular stock and usually when i let that happen that has always ended uh, fairly poorly for me so when i do my own independent analysis and try to insulate the market movements away from what i think about a particular company um, i've usually had much better success with with those kinds of investments so it's important to focus on fundamentals and not be carried away by market volatility uh, so this this is another um, important thing and two two ideas that have helped me uh, do this is checklists and journaling 
so they go hand in hand so it's it's a good idea to develop a, a checklist of things to look for before going and buying a stock or something like that and um, so if you have a process and you adhere to the process uh, that that is a great first step to develop conviction and a checklist having a checklist of things that uh, should be met by a company uh, before you would consider investing in it so there there are must haves and there are nice to haves and each person's checklist is different but it lays down a particular process and having that checklist has really helped me uh, make good investments and if if a company uh, does not meet too many criteria in in my checklist and i go and invest in it uh, i'm i know going in that this is a low conviction investment uh, the other thing that goes hand in hand with checklists is journaling so when whenever i make a decision um in, investing decision it's 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 a good idea to go and write down the rationale for it uh, and then before selling any stock uh, because the thesis has changed or whatever b- before selling anything it's a good idea to go back and read that journal to see okay why did i buy this company what was the market cap of the company when i first bought it and w- what did i think about the company at that time and uh, are those points still valid about the company uh, so th- this idea of journaling every move writing down things before actually doing them Uh, that slows us down and gives us more time to think and that uh, prevents us from acting on our impulses when it comes to the stock market and generally as uh, dan kahneman likes to say there is fast thinking and there is slow thinking and sometimes we 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 have to think fast uh, but with the stock market and investing it's it's a long term game and slow and deliberate thinking generally works better and produces better results o- over the long term than fast thinking so uh, th- these are all the points that that i had in mind um the last thing i want to say is uh, we should avoid using excessive leverage uh, leverage is one classic way that a lot of us turn short term volatility into long term risk and in particular i've seen people just get into the stock market in the last two or three years um, they they do two kinds of things with leverage one is margins and the second one is options trading um, so i think margins are really really dangerous margin loans so if if you have a stock at 100 say and you take a margin loan to buy it let's say you put 20 of your own money to buy the stock and you put uh, 80 of uh, money on margin so 80 dollars borrowed from the broker or whatever uh, to buy the stock for 100 dollars then all it takes is a 20% uh, drawdown in the stock so if the stock goes from 100 to 80 your equity is completely wiped out uh, there's probably a margin call on the way and then um, so essentially the volatility may be completely temporary so next month uh, the the stock may uh, uh, may may go back up uh, it may, may reverse all its losses and go back up and uh, the thesis may be right the long term focus may be right e- everything might work right but the path so this is called a path dependent effect so um, if the if the stock goes from 100 to 200 but on the way it goes to 80 first before going to 200 uh, you still 
got the margin call and lost uh, all, all your money. So this is short-term volatility, a classic example of short-term volatility being converted into long-term risk because the call was good, the, uh, the, the stock is a good company, it, it doubled, it went from 100 to 200. But uh, what happened was on the way from 100 to 200, it went to 80 first and that completely uh, wipes out people who've taken margin loans and things like that. So with margins, uh, it, when we take a margin loan to buy stocks, we have to be right on the stock. We have to be right on the time frame, And we have to be right on the entire path that's going to be followed from 100 to 200. Not just um, the initial and final destination points. Uh, the second thing I see a lot of people do is uh, uh, do call options and things like that. So um, with, with call options, we have enormous amounts of leverage. So... Uh, uh, instead of putting $10,000 of capital or $100,000 of capital into a stock, if we put that into an option, uh, we'll be able to bet on much greater uh, uh, on a much greater number of shares. And if, if those shares go up, the margin, uh, the, the options can do really well. And if those uh, shares go down or stay exactly the same, uh, we can lose 100% of our money. So again, with options, we have to be right not just about uh, the stock, but also about what it is going to do between now and when the option expires. So if the stock is a great, if, if the company is a great company, it goes from 100 to 200 again. But on the day the option expires, if the stock has only got gone from 100 to say 110, and uh, this is a $120 call option or something like that, uh, the, the right to buy that stock for, for 120, uh, that is worth exactly zero. The option expires worth less and we've lost 100% of our capital. And so this is another way that a lot of people uh, uh, burn their fingers on. I, I've done things like this before. Um, I've, I've also gotten uh, burned uh, do, doing all these different things. Uh, and it, it is something like a rite of passage, I think, for those who uh, do options uh, um, uh, trading and things like that. So th these days, uh, we, we are almost exclusively sellers of options, not buyers uh, of options, because I, I really don't like to lose 100% of uh, of our money on, on anything. Uh, so unless we have a diversified portfolio of bets, I, I don't like to bet on any individual thing uh, with a sizable portion of our money. Uh, so margins and options trading leverage, if we use excessive leverage, uh, that can uh, very quickly turn short-term volatility into long-term risk. And um, so that, that is the whole idea behind um, anti-fragility and Nassim Talib's ideas. What Talib does is he, he turns short-term volatility into his advantage. So what he likes to say is you, you have to buy options uh, that, that most of the time uh, they may expire worthless. But when something like this happens, when some black swan event or when, when some crazy event happens, like March 2020 or something like that, the options will 10x in value or something like that. So uh, he wants to position himself in such a way that he benefits from volatility. Um, but I am content if I just don't lose to volatility. I don't really want to benefit. Uh, well, if I benefit from it, that's great, of course. Uh, but really, the important thing is I don't want to lose out uh, because of some short-term thing that happens in the markets uh, that is completely outside our control. But um, 
I don't want something that happens in the short term to affect uh, our long term chances of building wealth. Uh, so, so th- these are all uh, the, the 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 key concepts. So the first thing is. Uh, don't be forced to sell at low prices to meet expenses, whether they are um, uh, payment for a house or taxes or any, anything like that. That is point number one. Uh, point number two is to uh, try and master our own psychology to prevent us from making bad decisions during periods of volatility. That is um, through reading uh, books that inspire us about investing or listening to people who, uh, who are inspiring to us or uh, doing uh, writing checklists or uh, journaling, thing, things like that. Uh, just trying to slow down our thinking so that we engage more in on uh, m- more in um, the the slow thinking rather than the fast thinking. Um, that's point number two. Third thing is to focus on fundamentals. Uh, to have our own view about intrinsic value of a stock and things like that. Um, and the fourth thing is not to use excessive leverage um, and and the final point i want to make is uh, we we all make mistakes and uh, I, i've made plenty of investing mistakes and uh, buffett has made plenty of investing mistakes and so on uh, but the important thing in investing the most important thing is survival so uh, it's okay to make mistakes but we should not make a mistake that is so severe that it takes us out of the game uh, so that is what we should try to avoid at, at all costs. So um, a, a wrong call, a, lo- a, a, a wrong option purchase or a trade that goes against us or something, some company that we bought that we thought was a great company, but then turned out to be a disappointing performer. All that is fine, but we should, as far as possible, make sure that no single mistake or no single group of correlated mistakes can kill us and that is what happens in times of short-term volatility. When there's a lot of volatility, what happens is uh, we we let our uh, mistakes uh, shape our decisions, and that that is is generally not 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 a good idea. Uh, so that that is the most important thing is to survive. So th- these are broadly the points that I wanted to touch on today, and uh, let's let's open the the, um, the call to. Um, callers, uh, questions, um, or if you want to share some things that worked for you to handle this kind of volatile market or something like that, please feel free to share. So the next caller is uh, David Park. Hey there, thank you. That was hey. a very calming, good good advice to think in the long term. I was thank wondering, you. Um, you mentioned, I mean, Buffett says, you know, to be greedy when others are fearful. And it's interesting to see that he spent a third of his cash position uh, to buy a whole bunch of stocks. Um, do you find yourself becoming more aggressive as well? Um, and do you look to you know, Buffett's cash portfolio sometimes as a kind of a signal um, if you should be greedy versus fearful? Uh, that that is a great question, and uh, yes, Buffett has this famous quote about <laughs> being greedy when others are fearful. Uh, the thing is, uh, I think the the important thing is to have conviction. Um, so uh, d- during March of 2020, um, e- everybody was fearful uh, about, um, especially travel companies, hotels and airlines and all that. 
And during that particular time, Buffett actually sold all his airline holdings. Uh, so so he, he he was being fearful when others were fearful <laughs> at, at that time. So I, I think it's, it's important to be uh, a contrarian in investing, but not just for the sake of being contrarian. It's also important to be right uh, or to have a, a process that you have conviction in. We model my portfolio decisions uh, based on how much cash Buffett is holding or anything like that because Buffett has a completely different set of constraints uh, than I do. So I, I can go and buy small companies and things like that uh, where I find value. Uh, my, my investing universe is completely different from Warren Buffett's investing universe. So if, if a company is you know, less than, say, uh, $50 billion in market cap or something like that, Buffett can't even look at that company. Whereas I, I can, uh, I'm perfectly happy to go and invest in companies like that. So just because Buffett has a lot of cash, it, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to hold <laughs> a, a lot of cash. I, I, of course, look at what Buffett is doing uh, to, to, uh, with, with regard to Berkshire buybacks and things like that. Uh, but I, I don't really treat his, uh, how much cash he's holding as, as a signal. Uh, to decide what I should do. If I find a good company that I'm uh, perfectly happy to invest in for the long run, fundamentals-driven investing, if I think over a long period of time, the cash flows from this company are, are going to more than uh, are going to be more than enough to uh, get me not only my purchase price back, but also a decent return, uh, I'm, I'm happy to buy when Buffett is sitting on mountains of cash. Indeed, you got to think for yourself. I do have a follow-up question. Sure. You mentioned short-term a lot. Uh, what do you consider uh, short-term? I know Peter Lynch says, you know, sometimes some of his ideas haven't performed well until like the third year. But right. how long do you give your your convict, convicted ideas uh, time to play out? Uh, so I normally have some idea of how the company is going to uh, perform in the next year or in the next two years or three years or some, something like that. So it depends. Uh, it varies from invest investment to investment. If it is something like a special situation or something like that, uh, the timeline is much shorter. But if it is a long-term uh, investment, uh, I- I'm okay with holding companies for three years or even, even five years. Uh, I, I, as long as I'm reasonably confident that uh, the, the earnings and cash flows of the company are progressing in the right direction and if I'm able to see evidence of that in the 10Ks and 10Qs, as long as my thesis is playing out uh, as I expected or within the parameters that I expected, I'm generally willing to hold companies uh, for a long time, even even if the stock is not doing that well in the market. Uh, but that is also because I don't really put an enormous amount of my net worth into any individual stock. So even if it turns out that I'm wrong about uh, a particular company or something like that, it is maybe going to affect 5% or 6% of our portfolio. Uh, so, so it's not such a big deal uh, to me. Whereas um, there are others who, who put 60% of their portfolio in, into a single stock and things like that. Uh, and then I think uh, if, if something doesn't work out, the, the danger of being wrong is, is much higher for, for those people than, than for me. So I'm generally more patient and generally willing to give companies a long rope as long as I believe that they are performing reasonably uh, according to my expectations or better than my expectations. 
but that is also a function of my risk tolerance so so above all you know as i said i, I want to survive so more, more than um, you know hit, hitting it out of the park i i i'm happy to uh, just earn a decent return and not get blown up that is really my biggest priority in investing this rule number 1 don't lose money all right thanks for your absolutely talk. sure so the the next caller is uh, ricardo hello good afternoon tenki are you hearing me yes i can hear you okay thank you very much for this wonderful topic and it's very relevant um today at least to me and um the points that you give that we should bear in mind is so so important um one of the thing that you touch on though was the psychology that affects a lot of investors especially beginners right and it it's all about the behavior or the herd mentality right i would like to mention two things i remember this um story that as what gave about these animals lemmings i don't know if you heard him mention it oh yeah these are some yeah. small that's that's a animals. beautiful story yeah <laughs> so aswad damodaran has this wonderful thing where he says why does he do valuation uh, so so he calls a lot of investors lemmings because they just follow each other so when the market is going up um, especially momentum investors and and so on so he he likes to call them lemmings because they they just copy what the others are doing and what what aswad damodaran likes to say is he's a lemming with a life vest um, so so that that analogy really stuck with me uh, quite a bit so be, so so a lemming you, you might jump off the cliff with uh, with a bunch of other lemmings but as long as you have a life vest on uh, it's it's you won't die at least so again the this underscores the importance of survival being the first uh, most important thing for for an investor yes i i found that story very enlightening the, the uh, absolutely other, the the other point i don't know if it was graham or buffett that said it was like the stock market is like a voting machine um in the short term i think you also had mentioned it and a weighing machine in the long term so you really shouldn't let the short term fluctuations affect your long term outlook and uh, right exactly um, so it's it's true in the in the short term uh, the the stock market is um, the 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 movements of the stock market are based more on sentiment and um, uh, based on quarterly earnings reports or uh, you know what uh, biden uh, says tomorrow or so, something like that uh, in the in the long term it is driven by the fundamentals of the company but it's also true that in order to get to the long term we have to be able to survive the short term and if we are not able to survive the short term if we are forced to sell stocks because of a margin call or because we have other expenses or something like that then the short term becomes very important to us and that can wipe us out so uh, th- there is the saying in investing that to, to finish first you should first finish and <laughs> uh, i think that that is particularly relevant you can't let short term volatility take you out of the game that that is the most important thing yes yeah, so true 
And the other, well, it's actually a joke I have um, that I would like to tell. Um, so there's this oil prospector that died and he went to heaven. And he's at heaven's door and St. Peter said he can't let him in because um, the section for oil prospectors are filled up. So the oil prospector who is at the gate said to the gatekeeper, if he could tell the other oil prospectors that they found oil in hell. And so the St. Peter agreed to tell them. So they told them and they all got excited and run out of hell, out of heaven to go to hell. So now the St. Peter said to the oil prospector, there is no, there is no lots of vacancy. You can come in. Right. But, but the oil prospector now said, no, I think there might be some truth to the rumor. So he's going to follow the other oil prospector to check it out. So even though it's a joke, you know, it's just the power of behavior in whole investment. Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy has this wonderful saying. Um, so we, we all think that narrative uh, drives price. But uh, Jim says that just as narrative drives price, price also drives the narrative. So uh, it's kind of like a complex system with a feedback loop where if, if a stock is doing very well, uh, if, if, if it beat earnings for the last two quarters or something like that and the price shot up, suddenly people's views about the stock, its long-term prospects, everything changes just, just because the price has moved up. Uh, not, not necessarily because anything fundamental has changed with the company. Um, so when, when stocks go up, people tend to view them more favorably. And so the narrative also changes. And when the stock um, is not liked by the market, a lot of people tend to uh, have much, much less rosy views about, about its future and, and so on. And so that, that is why it is important not to let the market sway our opinion uh, too much about what we think uh, of, of a company. Um, but at, at the same time, to be humble enough to realize that, you know, the, the market probably knows way, way more than us. Uh, so, uh, so as Rudyard Kipling said in the, in the poem, if uh, he had the sentence uh, that said, uh, if, if you can believe in yourself when uh, all men doubt you, but you should also be able to make allowance for your doubting, for their doubting too. Uh, so, it's it's important to have conviction, but it's it's also important to recognize and plan for the possibility that we may be wrong. Yes, that's so true. Um, before I go, I would like you to make comment on one scenario. And this is um, something I have experienced in my little portfolio. In cases, in case where say you have two companies that are very solid and they are down. But say company A is down and company B that you own is also down, but by a much, much larger degree. Right. Say one is down 150% and, and company B is down 100%. The question is now, how do you decide? Do I just hold for the long term because there will be recovery because these are two solid companies? Or do I take advantage of the bigger fall in company B 
and rearrange my portfolio a bit. So right. That's so I would like your take on what you would do in cases like that. Right. Um, so uh, it really depends on how much conviction I have in, in the particular stock and my risk parameters as well. So um, the conviction is how sure am I that I am right about this company and the market is wrong? Uh, what can I see about this company that I think the market is not fully pricing in or whatever? So if I'm very confident uh, about this particular company, then I may decide to uh, pour um, more of put more of my portfolio into it. And that if I, if I don't have cash at the moment or something like that, I may even look at selling this other company to buy more of this uh, company, which has gone down even more. Uh, but at the same time, I also have risk parameters because uh, you know I'm I'm not Buffett, um, I'm no, nowhere even close, and so it's very very possible that I'm wrong, and so I don't want to be putting in more and more of our money uh, into. A particular stock it may be a great opportunity but i may be completely wrong about it so i don't want to put more money into something that uh, i may uh, regret later on so uh, i have risk parameters so i i, I don't usually like to put more than five to ten percent of our uh, net worth into any single uh, stock uh, berkshire is an exception but berkshire is itself a diversified conglomerate. So in any single company which has a single uh, non-diversified business, I don't like to put more than 5 to 10% of our net worth. And if that company does well, and as a result of that, our position grows to 20% of the portfolio or something like that, I'm okay with it. But I'm not generally a fan of uh, doubling down when there is a significant possibility that I may be wrong. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, so the next caller is uh, Rehards, who's a regular caller on the show. Hey, hi, hi, Tanke. I have a, um, a request. Uh, uh, when you, in your original speech, you you mentioned uh, this example about taxes. So you said. Um, if, if there's a portfolio of 100k and then it goes to 150k, then there's a gain of 50k, and and you you have to pay taxes and and then it goes back to to 80k. Uh, can, can you can 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 you go uh, through this example one one more time? Because I didn't understood this uh, thing about taxes. I had this uh, I have this understanding that that you pay taxes only on realized gains and here i i thought that in your example you pay taxes on unrealized gains so uh, maybe no, can no. you clarify it so you are absolutely right uh, so at least in the us you you pay taxes only on realized gains and what i meant was uh, someone had a portfolio of 100k and uh, they sold their stocks for 150k so mm -hmm. they had realized gains of 50k uh, so that that was the example and and then um, they would have to pay 12.5k of taxes on that. So the safest thing to do once you sell uh, stocks for 150k is to take out this 12.5k and just set it aside because you're going to be needing it in four months to pay the IRS or whatever. So uh, 
so then uh, the idea is that you consider that your portfolio is worth only 137.5k not 150k and mm-hmm. then you can of course take that 137.5k and put it into some other stocks uh, but if you put the entire 150k into uh, some other stock and that stock goes down 33% or something like that now that includes the money that you need to pay the irs yeah okay Okay, that's that's clear. Thank you. Right. Sure. Uh, so the next caller is uh, Kiran. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, I think uh, thank you for my taking my call. First of all, I am a regular reader of your Twitter handles. Just now I read your inflation topic. was superb and superb. Actually, oh, I didn't you. understand so far how this inflation makes the company uh, uh, losing their profits. Now I understood. Anyway, uh, this is out of the topic question. Right, no, it all boils down to the because... difference between earnings and cash flows. So yeah, yeah, you can have earnings, but, but if your yeah. cash flows... <laughs> are low because the yeah. business requires all the capital investment back in yeah, the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we should in, always engage in the low uh, capital intensive businesses. Uh, I mean, my question, uh, can we consider this IT companies in that section? I mean, in this low intensive, capital intensive uh, uh, companies. Well, uh, example, well, the happens? example just now I had, just now I uh, go through a company name IPAM, IPAM, as an IT company in US based IT company. Uh, so, can I consider that company in this uh, low intensive cap, low capital intensive business model? Uh, so, I, I don't know much about this uh, this particular company. So, uh, so generally speaking, uh, low capital means uh, w- w- what are the assets on their balance sheet, and how much in assets do they need to produce one dollar of earnings? So, if if a company needs say only uh, to 20 cents of assets or uh, to a 20 cents of equity to, to produce one dollar of earnings, then that that is a very uh, uh, high, uh, so, sort of low low capital intensity kind of company. But if a company needs uh, say 20 dollars of assets to produce one dollar of earnings, then the, that is a much more capital heavy company. Oh, okay, okay. So with the balance sheet, we have to identify. In the balance sheet only we can identify with this uh, is it uh, asset uh, light or asset heavy business <laughs> well that is usually the way it goes but there is also this um, uh, th- this thing uh, that michael mobasen and aswad modern talk about a lot which is that a lot of companies these days are investing through the income statement so if if you take um, uh, saas companies or something like that um, they may spend a lot of money on research and development. They may spend a lot of money on sales and marketing to acquire customers and so on. But these expenses that they are actually spending on, uh, they are not uh, recorded anywhere on the balance sheet. So they go through just the income statement and the cash flow statement. So companies like this, it may appear as though they are asset light because the balance sheet doesn't have any assets. Uh, or very, very little in assets. But they may need lots of capital to go and acquire customers or to invest in R&D and so on. It's just that this capital that they are investing into the business, it goes straight to the income statement and affects the bottom line directly 
instead of going through the balance sheet. So you also have to be aware of that. So really, there's there's no okay. you, you can't just look at a single number on the balance sheet and come to any any kind of conclusion. It's uh, it's really a game of trying to understand the business. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you, 10K. Once again, the last question regarding that course. What about is it fixed or the fees and all? When you, when you will start, I am eagerly waiting for the course. Really, really appreciate it. Well, so, uh, Ali and I, we are creating the course <laughs> right now. Um, and yeah. um, so, so we are targeting to launch in September. Um, okay. So <laughs> we, we, we hope that we'll be able to meet the target. I, oh, I'm optimistic sure. that we'll, we'll Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Eagerly waiting and a very, very big fan of you because I'm a layman and because I don't know anything regarding this. I'm not basically from this economics field or business field, but I understand anything, something, anything regarding Gambri means from your tweets. <laughs> so I'm eagerly waiting for Saturday morning <laughs> and all. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Tenke. Keep on <laughs> fighting. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. So, so the next next caller is Vinod, who's also a regular caller. Hi, Tanke. Can you hear hey. me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, my question is uh, slightly on the macro trend. Um, for last uh, uh, 12 plus years, uh, the Fed has been um, very flexible and uh, uh, supporting the printing and also keeping the asset market uh, slightly upper or not slightly upper, <laughs> significantly <laughs> upper, right? And whenever there is a 20, close to 20 percentage correction, I, I think they have better control of stepping in and then trying to reduce uh, the the interest rate uh, whenever there is an opportunity. But going forward, looks like the the uh, the odds are very uh, it's not in favor uh, towards the Fed uh, because the because of the rising inflation and the companies is also struggling with a uh, a uh, lot of uh, cost and due to supply chain and also the demand uh, the de- demands that we're seeing it across the world and uh, in, in this in in this environment uh, to basically like look at the companies where they pay dividend and uh, and also some stable companies and uh, which is basically reasonably growing well and things like that but even technology sector is being uh, punished uh, Uh, drastically uh, because of the raising in, in interest rate uh, how do you see this trend because this trend even though the, the indexes or the, uh, the until the inflation we get back the inflation uh, back to the normal level as per the fed rate is like 2 percentage i don't think it is going to happen very very soon uh, uh, might exist uh, for like say three to five years or beyond and if that is the case uh, how investors should position their portfolio to at least uh, uh, manage this inflation not even maybe reasonable returns on top of the inflation that we are seeing currently and also second question is on uh, what's your view on on, on berkshire since it has been corrected uh, quite significantly always um, uh, what's your view specifically on like they have exposure close to 45% of apple um, um in this in- inflationary environment um, i'm i'm thinking maybe apple could be more of uh, selling the discretionary products but it it might not be uh, uh might not be a kind of a necessary uh, 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 uh item where basically purchase 
they can potentially delay so will it going to hurt their earnings and potentially and what would be the the consequences if that happens in in the next coming uh, three to four years and what would happen to the Berkshire uh, as well. Thank you. Absolutely. These, these are all such wonderful questions. So um, regarding the macro thing, yes, we have talked before in, the, in this podcast about positioning our portfolio for inflation. And um, as I said, there are three main things that we have to try and do. Uh, the first thing is to preserve our own personal earning power so that our incomes keep up with inflation. Uh, the second thing to do is uh, to try and keep our expenses as low as possible so that we, e- even if there is inflation and uh, we uh, have to spend more and more each year just to just for our cost of living, uh, we are still able to save reasonably well uh, through frugality. So that is the second thing. And the third thing is to invest in companies that are uh, that have three key characteristics. So the first characteristic is pricing power. So Apple, you're absolutely right that um, you know sp- spending two thousand uh, dollars or thousand five hundred dollars on a phone or whatever, um, people are not uh, people may put it off uh, during periods of high inflation, especially if uh, the inflation is accompanied by a recession or some, something like that. Uh, then yes, uh, so com- companies that generally have pricing power, um, a- Apple has shown itself uh, to have plenty of pricing power. So they, um, so there are a lot of people who, uh, if if your phone breaks or something like that. So for example, you know, I I try to be very careful with my phone, but if if I break my phone or something like that, uh, then I'm probably going to go tomorrow to the apple store and buy a new phone <laughs> so so it's uh, th- their gadgets they add so much value to my life that i, I can't spend even um, a few hours without them so i'm completely invested into the apple ecosystem and uh, i think there are a lot of people who are like me so the demand may not be as elastic as we think it is but of course the if, if if the phone doesn't break, then uh, I may uh, try to push it with one more year and upgrade later instead of upgrading sooner. So that is definitely a possibility. But I don't think there will be too many users churning out of the Apple ecosystem unless they do something really terrible. And they are one of the most innovative companies in the field. So um, I have some experience in, in in the technology industry and their uh, M1 and M2 chips that they are coming out with, uh, they, they have essentially, uh, to some extent, uh, earlier it used to be Intel plus Microsoft. Intel used to supply the hardware, Microsoft used to supply the software, and Intel plus Microsoft were this duopoly that sort of uh, managed to squeeze out all the returns uh, from, from the rapidly expanding uh, field of personal computing. And I think today Apple is almost like Intel plus Microsoft rolled into one because they supply both the hardware and the software. Their M1 chips and M2 chips, if you look at the graphics performance and things like that, it's it's just absolutely incredible what, what they are doing. And they are in a position to be able to integrate all these things and services on top of it and so on. So it's a very, very sticky ecosystem. So over the over a long period of time, I'm reasonably happy with Apple and I don't think the stock is that 
overvalued or anything like that it's definitely valued more richly today than what it was when buffett first bought into it but i i, I don't really think it is very far um, overvalued or or anything like that and the company's uh, asset light it doesn't uh, it, it, tim cook is a very disciplined at capital allocation and luka mystery and uh, others at apple they they are reasonably good about allocating capital intelligently and so on so i don't really have any major concerns about apple or berkshire's position in apple uh, the, regarding the broader picture of uh, so so i said one particular thing is pricing power uh, the the second thing is capital lightness and uh, i believe apple is also reasonably capital light most of the heavy uh, semiconductor manufacturing and things like that is being done by tsmc and others so apple doesn't really require a whole lot of capital Uh, to to manufacture it for its phones or anything like that so it's it's a reasonably capital light uh, business model um the third thing is judicious use of debt so usually what happens is inflation helps borrowers it hurts uh, lenders so um, that's simply because borrowers can borrow in today's more valuable dollars and pay pay back the money in tomorrow's less valuable dollars so apple is doing a, a reasonable job borrowing money um, so they have billions of dollars of debt but they also have billions of dollars of cash which is losing purchasing power um, still they are able to generate so much cash from their operations and use it to buy back stock and uh, issue dividends and things like that so i'm reasonably happy with the way they've uh, decided to employ debt uh, so so these are the three main characteristics so pricing power uh, capital lightness and judicious use of debt and generally companies that do these three things well uh will be reasonably okay they, they may not thrive in an inflationary environment but uh they, they will uh generally not fare too badly uh, as long as long as inflation is moderate so if if inflation is uh, if we get into hyperinflation or something like that then all bets are off uh, but uh, i i think the chances of that are reasonably low but you are absolutely right the the fed um, we should never underestimate the fed uh, the, there are some very smart people working at the, at the fed and they they've been able to do enormous things so during the 2008 2009 crisis uh, when the fed uh, lowered rates and uh, introduced all these uh, qe uh, quantitative easing and all that uh, m- many economists uh, expert economists all over the world were saying this is never going to work uh, what does the fed think it can do it can't uh, violate the laws of economics and and all that but they um, managed to uh, stave off a giant crisis and they've managed to do some incredible things o- o- over the years and now is this all some delayed effect where uh, is it is it like a time bomb that is just waiting uh, with the fuse being constantly kicked down the road uh, i i don't know there are some people who have that view uh, but but generally the, the fed is a very powerful institution and we shouldn't underestimate its capabilities but at the same time uh, if inflation is running really hot the fed is not going to be if if they have a mandate of 2% inflation uh, then they they are going to find it very hard to lower rates and as they raise rates it's it's going to be uh, it, it's going to reduce asset prices and so on simply because uh, the when you do a discounted cash flow analysis it, it's a very fundamental way of looking at it but if you if you raise the risk free rate in a dcf uh, the valuation goes down 
And uh, typically, if uh, companies have cash flows that are coming in many years into the future, those companies tend to be, uh, those DCFs tend to be a lot more sensitive to uh, uh, changes in interest rates and changes in the risk-free rate and, and things like that. So the Fed is, uh, they, they may not be as effective at propping up asset prices as they once were. Uh, but then again, uh, if we have high inflation and um, uh, because of that, uh, if, if we go into a recession or something like that, uh, then uh, the Fed may decide to reverse course and lower rates again. Um, we, we don't really know what the Fed is, is going to do. They have some powerful tools, but it, it's true that uh, if inflation, uh, they, they have two, two mandates, essentially, employment and inflation, and they, they have to walk a fine line between the two. And uh, today, uh, the, the line is much finer than it was maybe three years ago, because three years ago, they, they could... Uh, print plenty of money and they, they, they could uh, buy, buy enormous amounts of assets uh, and uh, increase their balance sheet and do all these different things and inflation uh, remained low no matter what they did. Uh, but today we, we are seeing the effects of high inflation. Now, whether this is transitory or not, is it more uh, on the demand side or the supply side? Uh, think, things like these uh, uh, will play out in the future so we, we have to sort of uh, uh, keep, keep an eye out for that uh, but but you're absolutely right that the uh, the, the fed put which uh, so so the fed put was this concept that a lot of people had saying that, uh, that the fed will never allow uh, asset prices to go low stock prices to decrease so if you're buying a stock in effect you're getting a put option with it for free so that that is a fed put and it may definitely be less true today than what, what, what it was uh, maybe two or three years ago. Uh, that, does that answer the questions? Yes, yes. Thank you. Much appreciated, uh, 10K. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the next caller is Adam. Hello? Hello? Hi. Um, I just had a question. You mentioned um, options and not blowing yourself up with it. And you said right. you had an option strategy of trying not to blow yourself up with it. If you can tell me a little bit, I'm more interested in kind of like what option strategies you prefer, you go for, like in usually with time periods, like during this volatility, do you pursue options or do you wait for calmer periods? What's kind of your framework for how you think about options and option strategies? Uh, so that that's a good question. So if volatility is high, uh, that is generally good for uh, people who are options sellers because they will be able to get higher premiums and things like that. Uh, but of course, at the same time, if volatility is high, then option sellers may may also be forced uh, to to buy stock or sell stock at unfavorable prices. Uh, so so generally, uh, the premiums are high, but uh, there the, there is so in exchange for high premiums, you also take on maybe slightly more risk. But if you are the kind of investor who's a fundamentals-driven options investor, so this is something I like to say, that just, just because you're uh, fundamentals-driven does not mean that you should stay away from options. So if, if for example, I think a company is worth, um, say, $100 a share or something like that, 
I, I may be perfectly uh, be willing to sell uh, a, a put option to somebody. So I, I give that guy uh, the, the right uh, to, to sell this company to me uh, at, say, $90 a share. Um, and I may be able to pocket, uh, say, say $2 or $3 a month, uh, just, just waiting for that. So uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do this. If I think the intrinsic value of a company is $100, I'm happy to buy it at, at say, $90. And um, while, while I wait for it to fall to 90 I get paid for the privilege of, of just waiting. Uh, so I, I, I'm reasonably okay with doing things like that. And of course, uh, it's true that during periods of volatility, the stock may go to 90, it may also go to 80. And, and then um, I, I have to buy the stock at, at 90, even though it may be valued at 80. But if I think the intrinsic value is 100 and I'm a fundamentals driven investor, um, I'm happy to hold on to this uh, uh, stock. And uh, uh, my, my estimate of it is if, if I buy the stock at 100 today, I get my target rate of return, which is like 10% or whatever. So uh, if I buy, buy it at 90 today, my target rate of uh, my, my, the return I get from the stock in my estimation will be higher than my target. And that is good enough for me. So th- these kinds of option strategies uh, generally work well during periods of volatility, simply because the premiums that you can uh, get when you sell these options will be higher. Uh, but the problem is if you are a buyer of options, then during periods of high volatility, your options are going to be, uh, you're going to be paying a high premium for those options. Um, the, the most important thing while buying options is you shouldn't put so much of your money into options that uh, if they all expire worthless, then you've lost a big chunk of your capital. So whenever you buy options, there is the risk that you lose 100% of capital. Um, when you sell options, at least you get the premium. Of course, there are a large number of complicated strategies on top of this. There are You can do spreads and you can do straddles and you can do uh, butterfly strategies and iron condors and all, all, all these different things. Uh, so I'm, I'm just talking about the simplest kind of options uh, strategy here, but it's, it's possible to get as esoteric as you want. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, it looks like uh, that that Adam was the last caller. So thank you all very much for showing up and for listening uh, to the conversation so patiently. I very much enjoyed this talk. I hope uh, you guys learned something useful from it as well and it helps you in your investing journey. So um, thank you very much and uh, see you next week, uh, next Sunday. Bye-bye.